everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. On the evening of March 20th, 1995, Julie Ferguson, a 17-year-old high school junior, worked her closing shift in the Greenway Shopping Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. After closing up at 9.25 p.m., Julie waited outside for her friends to pick her up. When they arrived at 10 p.m., they found Julie's belongings left behind on the curb, but there was no sign of Julie. The police were called, and they quickly determined that Julie had been abducted. Hours later, Julie's body was discovered a few miles away. She had been brutally murdered after fighting for her life. It's been more than 28 years since Julie was killed, and investigators are still searching for the person or people responsible. Hey everyone, welcome back to Detective Perspective. My name is Derek Lavasser. I'm a licensed private investigator and former police detective. Each week I'll be covering an unsolved case in story format. I'll then give you my perspective on the investigation and provide contact information for the individuals or organizations connected to the case so that if you have any tips, you can contact them directly and maybe you can help solve a case. And if you're someone who's interested in true crime, specifically unsolved cases, and you would like to hear my opinion on those investigations, please consider subscribing, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever platform you use. Okay, so I'm going to talk quickly about this case. This is a little longer episode tonight, so I won't take too long. Julie Ferguson, as I just said in the teaser, this is a mysterious case. There's multiple persons of interest slash suspects. And we're talking about a very small window uh, of opportunity for our suspect or suspects. And you'll notice that unlike previous episodes, I usually just say the person responsible. Tonight, I deliberately said the person or people responsible. And that'll become more clear why I'm so conscious of that as we get into the story. But yeah, this is a very small window where technically Julie was supposed to be picked up right at I don't know, 9.30, and the friends weren't there. And they came a little bit later, which wasn't a big deal because Julie was usually running late to close up the store. Um, and again, in that small window, a lot went down, right? Obviously, we're, we're here tonight talking about this case because of what occurred. It's no one's fault. We, we all do it all the time, but it just goes to show you, and I, I stress it all the time here and even on Crime Weekly, victim of opportunity, right? When you think about suspects, they don't necessarily go out there with a person in mind. It's more so a a profile in mind. And what I mean by that is someone who fits the mold that they feel is susceptible to to a criminal act. 
So again, it doesn't have to be this specific person that they've known going into the incident. It could just be someone that based on the outside circumstances, they view as a victim of opportunity. Now, with that being said, I'm not foreshadowing here saying that whatever happened to Julie uh, was carried out by a, a group of strangers. It could have been someone that she's known in the past, and maybe that's why this all went down in the first place. It could have been a situation where she knew her attacker or attackers, and that's why she was open to the idea of getting close to them, talking to them, which gave them the opportunity to get the drop on her without her knowing. So that's where we are. We're going to get right into it. And this is a horrible segue, but on a lighter note, if you're listening to this, it's uh, Monday, I believe the 20th. And if you're watching this, it's the 21st. And Thanksgiving is coming up uh, tomorrow for most people that are celebrating it. So I just want to say happy Thanksgiving to everybody. I hope you're going to be getting together with friends and family. And uh, the reason I bring it up at the top of the show is stories like this should reaffirm to you how important uh, your family is because in a moment's notice, they can be gone. So really, if you take anything from tonight's episode, other than if you have information to help, uh, take from it that when you get to have time with your loved ones, cherish it because you never know if you'll get the opportunity again. And I'm, I can promise you, uh, Julie's parents, who unfortunately are no longer with us, would have given everything for just one more day with Julie. So if you are out there and you have that opportunity and you're going to be surrounded by friends and family, think about Julie and think about all the victims we've talked about here on Detective Perspective and their family members and, and think about how lucky you really are. So with that out of the way, let's dive into this week's case. Born on January 11th, 1978 in Maryland, Julie Lynn Ferguson grew up as an only child of William and Pat. Sadly, her father passed away from cancer when she was just a little over a year old. Julie was then raised by her mom, who never had any other children. They lived in Greenbelt, a city around 22,000 people just outside of Washington, D.C. By the spring of 1995, Julie was a 17-year-old junior at Eleanor Roosevelt High School. She played the flute, studied German, and had an interest in journalism. Known for being smart, hardworking, and bubbly, Julie had plans for college, though her career goals often changed. Her high school principal later described her to the Washington Post as the kind of girl you'd want your daughter to be like if you had one. That spring, Julie had a part-time job as a cashier at Linens and Things in the Greenway Shopping Center. She lived nearby with her mom and her beloved black and white cat, Oreo. Even though Julie could walk to work and school, her mom insisted she get rides from family and friends because she was worried about Julie's safety. On the evening of March 20th, Julie worked a closing shift at Linens and Things. After her shift, scheduled to end at 9.30 p.m., she had plans with three friends. They were supposed to pick her up so they could spend the night together and attend a friend's mom's funeral the next day. Julie spoke with her friends on the phone during work and asked them to pick up a few things from her house. Before her shift ended, she called her mom to confirm that her friends were picking her up and that she didn't need to worry. At around 9.25 p.m., Julie left her job and went to a nearby liquor store in the same shopping center and bought a Coke. She then sat on a brick flower box in front of the well-lit liquor store and waited for her friends. She had a bag of clothes she bought earlier, her purse, and the Coke. Julie's friends were supposed to pick her up at 9.30, but they didn't show up on time. It wasn't uncommon for Julie to stay until 10, fixing shelves and organizing the store, so they weren't concerned about showing up right at 9.30. At around 10 p.m., Julie's friends arrived, and she wasn't there. Her bags of clothes and open can of Coke, still wet with condensation, 
were left by the curb where she had been waiting. It was unusual for Julie not to be there when she said she would be, so her friends were immediately worried. They checked the liquor store, thinking she might be inside, and an employee confirmed that she had been in there earlier, but she wasn't there now. Julie's friends went back outside and looked through her items that were on the ground. They noticed that her purse was missing, which told them that she couldn't be far. They searched the shopping center and asked people if they had seen her, but there was no sign of Julie anywhere. Growing more concerned, Julie's friends went back to the liquor store to call her mom. They asked if she had picked Julie up, and she said no. The liquor store manager then called the police, who arrived and started canvassing the area. The cashier told officers that he had seen Julie outside right after she bought the coke, but he didn't witness an abduction or hear any screams. Meanwhile, Pat rushed over to the shopping center. She later told the Washington Post, quote, When I saw her stuff on the sidewalk, I was frightened from the get-go. I had a feeling in my stomach, I can't even describe it. It was this gut feeling, a bad, bad, bad feeling that this was really bad. After it was clear that Julie was missing, various agencies canvassed the area, but no one had seen anything out of the ordinary. An APB was sent out for Julie and patrol cars scoured every road. Helicopters were also brought in to help, but they didn't find anything. Over seven hours later, at around 5.30 a.m., Julie's body was discovered on the side of the road, about four miles from the shopping center. This area was the 12100 block of Daisy Lane, near Route 193. According to On the Case with Paula Zahn, Julie was fully clothed, except for one sneaker found nearby. Her hands were tied behind her back, and she was curled up with scratches on her legs, knees, and thighs. There were severe bruises on her hands and arms, and it was clear that she bravely fought against her attacker. Julie's clothes were soaked in blood, and her throat was cut. An autopsy later revealed that she had been manually strangled before her throat was cut, which authorities theorized was to, quote, make sure she was dead. There was no evidence of sexual assault. Police determined that Julie's ID was not with her and her purse was still missing, but money was found in her pocket and no jewelry was taken, ruling out the potential motive being robbery. Julie's ID was later discovered in the median of Greenbelt Road, halfway between her job and where her body was discovered. However, her purse was never recovered. Police believed that the Daisy Lane location had been carefully chosen as a place to leave Julie's body. In 1995, this area was an isolated and dark location used as a shortcut for locals. It wasn't well known to people outside the area, which told police that the killer was most likely from the community. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. The police also noticed that despite Julie's blood-soaked clothes, there wasn't much blood at the scene, indicating that the attack likely happened somewhere else, although it was difficult to know for sure if that was the case 
as it was pouring rain outside. Police theorized that she was near death or already dead when she was left there and that the last hours of her life were horrifying. And based on the injuries to Julie's body, police believed that the person who killed her was extremely upset with her. Her murder was personal. Now let's quickly break down what was discussed so far. So first off, police are saying that there's no signs of sexual assault and yet her murder was, was brutal. So we could have a couple things going on here. It could be exactly what police are saying, which is that this person knew Julie and this was something where th this person was angry with her, didn't like her, resented her, whatever it might be. And the intention from the beginning was to, was to kill her. It could also be a situation where originally the motive was sexual in nature. They were going to have, they were going to, they were going to rape her. Um, but she fought back. She fought back and wouldn't allow it to happen. And during that altercation, when this person was trying to sexually assault her, she, she prevented it. And because of it, this person got upset and, and just strangled her to death. And, and that was the end of it. Either way, it's terrible. But that could be the situation, although I, I wouldn't say just based on what we know, unless there's more that's known that hasn't been divulged to the public, um, I wouldn't make too many leaps based on that limited information. But I do feel like investigators and the pathologists, they obviously have access to everything and, and have a better understanding of what they're dealing with. So if we're going to go off what they've said, I would say that they're probably right. This is a person who previously knew Julie or even if they didn't know Julie, just had feelings, preconceived notions about young women and, and they took out those frustrations, those angers on Julie, even if they didn't know her personally beforehand. Now, the police processed the crime scene in the pouring rain, trying to find whatever evidence hadn't been washed away yet. Police had said that they were able to gather DNA evidence, however, they haven't publicly said what was obtained. That night, about 20 patrol officers and detectives canvassed the neighborhood around the shopping center. Additional officers passed out flyers with Julie's photo, hoping someone might remember seeing her or the car that picked her up. Detectives also started talking to people who knew Julie, including her family, friends, classmates, and co-workers. According to On the Case with Paula Zahn, detectives found a lead when talking to Julie's co-workers. They learned that Julie had an argument with a customer named Victor prior to her murder. During the incident, Victor, a high school student, tried to buy something with a fake credit card and Julie had to take the card away. Victor got mad, threatened to kill her, and leave her body on the side of the road. Now this is pretty eerie considering what actually happened to Julie. The police talked to Victor and he said he didn't have any issues with Julie and wasn't near the shopping center when she was taken. He was at home, grounded by his parents, without access to a car. However, his parents said that he was home alone, meaning no one else could vouch for his whereabouts. Police ultimately learned that Victor was, quote, infatuated with Julie. He even had a picture of her on his dashboard of his car. He wanted to date her, but she said no. The police thought this might be a motive for murder, but there wasn't enough evidence to charge him. Now quickly, from what I can tell, Victor is no longer a top suspect on the department's list. A lot has happened since then, and you're going to hear about that through this episode. By March 23rd, a $1,000 reward was offered for info that could lead to the capture of the person who abducted and killed Julie. The police received many tips from places as far as North Carolina and West Virginia. They followed all of these leads, but none of them led to anything noteworthy. On March 30th, the Greenbelt News Review reported that detectives were looking into every angle, including the possible link between Julie's murder and a recent trial for two juveniles from New Carlton who were accused of killing a Greenbelt boy. 
Now, this is pretty interesting. Right before Julie's murder, she testified in this trial as a character witness for one of the defendants. The day after Julie's body was found, one of the defendants was sentenced to decades in prison for second-degree murder. The other was acquitted. Now, the police did say they didn't think Julie's testimony and her murder were connected. However, they weren't investigating it just in case. And as far as I can tell, this lead went nowhere. However, that same day, the city council said they would offer a $10,000 reward for info in Julie's case. That, coupled with donations from local businesses, the reward was now over $20,000. So detectives kept interviewing people about Julie's case, and at some point, her manager and others at the shopping center remembered seeing a red, maroon, or burgundy Volkswagen, possibly a Jetta, in the parking lot by the liquor store. One of the witnesses recalled three people in the red car, with two of them going into the liquor store at around 9.45 p.m. Now, according to the Greenbelt Gazette, another person saw Julie talking to the people in the car while the passenger door was open. Now, it seemed like they were asking her for something, and the witness didn't think much of it and went into the liquor store. When they came out a few minutes later, Julie and the car were gone. Later, around 12.30 a.m., a woman driving on Daisy Lane saw a red car stopped on the side of the road. The car had its headlights on and was facing the wrong way. The woman didn't see anyone in the car, and when she drove back a short time later, the car was gone. She did notice what she thought was a pile of trash on the side of the road, but she later realized it might have been Julie's body. After hearing these witness accounts, the police theorized that she might have known the people in the car. She could have felt comfortable enough to get in, but things went downhill once she did. Now, I'm going to stop for a minute and I'll weigh in on this more at the end during my perspective, but I don't necessarily agree with this. Even if she knew these individuals, she knew that her friends were showing up in a matter of minutes. So I don't think she would have gotten a ride from someone else. And if she did decide to do that, I think for sure she would have called one of her friends and said, hey, don't bother coming. I got another ride home, which as far as I know, she didn't do. So I don't necessarily agree that she got into the car willingly. I will concede that it's possible she had known these individuals from a previous encounter. I don't know how well, and maybe that's why she felt comfortable enough talking to them by approaching the car and talking to them at that moment. And once she did, they forced her into the vehicle. That scenario is equally as possible. On April 6th, the police announced they were looking for a 1988 or 1989 red, maroon, or burgundy Volkswagen Jetta, which they believed to be involved in the abduction and murder of Julie. Now, unfortunately, this car was never located. Around a month later, the police said they were searching for a man who was trying to lure young women into his car in the College Park and Beltsville areas. The Washington Times reported that the police thought this man could be connected to Julie's murder. The police said this man had a routine when trying to pick up his victims. He would be very persistent in trying to get young women to help him find an address that didn't exist. He stayed in his small maroon or red car and tried to get the women to come closer to his vehicle. The man was said to be white, between 30 and 40 years old, with light brown hair, and he wore reflective sunglasses. The police weren't sure if his attempts to abduct women and Julie's murder were linked, but they were checking into the lead along with others. Now, even though law enforcement couldn't identify that individual, another person of interest did emerge. Noel Smith, a white man in his early 20s with a history of assaulting women. According to On the Case with Paul Lazan, police heard about how Noel told his friends he wanted to date Julie, but she wasn't interested. He didn't take the rejection well and kept trying. Just two weeks before Julie was killed, Noel showed up at her work and asked her out again. When she turned him down, he started arguing with her in the middle of the store. The police looked into Noel's background and found multiple concerning details. 
Noel often visited Daisy Lane where he raced cars. Although he didn't own a car, he had access to several, including a red one. Someone also told the police that Noel had asked a female friend to help him with the murder. The police thought that maybe Noel, this woman, and the owner of the red car were the three people seen inside the vehicle at the liquor store. The police went to talk to Noel and he said he knew Julie, but he had nothing to do with her murder. He claimed that he was with friends watching TV at the time and his friends backed up his alibi. However, the friends seemed nervous when talking to the police, making the police even more suspicious. But even after talking to them multiple times, they stuck to their story. The police told Paulazan that they strongly suspected Noel, but didn't have enough evidence to charge him. Shortly after all of this, Noel was arrested on unrelated drug charges. A jail inmate then told the police that Noel bragged about killing Julie. The police went to visit Noel and confronted him about it, but he denied everything and the investigation continued. In August, the police said that after talking to more than 100 people, they still didn't have any suspects in Julie's case. They'd also gone through 300 leads, but none of them led to anything solid. In October, the police announced that they were teaming up with Delaware authorities to check if Julie's murder had any similarities with an attempted murder that happened in September. In that case, a 38-year-old white man named Doug De Silva had been arrested for attacking a woman in Delaware. She had her throat cut similar to Julie, but she survived. According to On the Case with Paula Zahn, Maryland police looked into Doug and found out he was from Maryland and was living a few miles from where Julie was taken. He knew Daisy Lane, had a red car, and went to the shopping center where Julie was abducted. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Now on the surface, it seemed promising that Doug was the person responsible for Julie's murder. Now here's the interesting thing about Doug if everything I just said wasn't enough. When the Maryland police interviewed Doug, he mentioned seeing Julie on the wall at the shopping center on the night she disappeared. He said when he saw her, he wondered why a pretty girl was sitting alone. Now, obviously, the police were surprised that he would put himself at the crime scene on the night of Julie's abduction. But when they asked him for more details, he denied being involved. Now, it's important to note that DNA proved Doug had nothing to do with the Delaware case. He was mistakenly identified and the charges were eventually dropped. But considering all the circumstances surrounding Julie's case, police continued to keep an eye on him regarding her murder. On March 20th, 1996, one year had passed since Julie was abducted and killed. To remember her, Julie's classmates wore white ribbons and marched from school to downtown Greenbelt. They held a vigil where Julie's friends shared how much they missed her humor, kindness, and bubbly personality. Julie's grandpa, William, told the Washington Times that he found comfort in the support from the school and the community. He said, quote, to say the least, it's heartwarming. The tender, loving care shown by everybody has been overwhelming. But the pain never went away. 
He said, choking back tears, quote, You try to cope. You don't realize how terrible violence is until it happens to you and your family. Now, I will say this. Julie's mom, Pat, didn't provide any quotes, and she rarely spoke to the media because, as you can imagine, talking about losing your only child was just extremely painful, and I don't blame her. Now, during all of this, the police shared an update saying they hadn't given up finding Julie's killer and that leads continued to trickle in. The lead investigator said he wanted more than anything to give Julie's mom answers. He said, quote, I feel terribly for her. I wish I could solve this case. I wish I could put her topsy-turvy world back into place. Over the next few years, reporting in Julie's case slowed down. By March of 2000, it had been five years since Julie was abducted and murdered. That month, the police announced that they had recently gone over all the information in Julie's case and talked again to all the original witnesses, plus some new ones. This gave them more details, including descriptions of two of the three suspects connected to Julie's abduction and murder. These suspects were the three people inside the 1988 or 1989 maroon or burgundy Volkswagen Jetta. According to the Greenbelt Gazette, one of the suspects was described as a black woman in her late teens or early 20s, 5 feet 9 inches tall, 140 pounds, with short hair. She was wearing a dark, thigh-length coat with white tennis shoes and jeans. The second suspect was a black man around the same age range. He was approximately 5 feet 9 inches tall with a small build, clean-shaven face, and a neat haircut. He wore dark pants and a multicolored silk shirt. The third suspect was also a black man. However, police didn't have any specific details about him, likely because only two of the suspects were seen getting out of the vehicle. Now, I want to weigh in on this as well because, again, this is one of those situations where I don't have access to the case, but I am asking myself, were these descriptions given at the time when the vehicle was initially identified, or did these detailed descriptions really just come in years later? And if so, why? I'm really hoping that these descriptions are from the original reporting, the original investigation, and it wasn't until now that they decided to release that information, which is very, which is very plausible. That could, that could be the case. But if this information is just coming in now, uh, it could be an issue because they're so descriptive. I don't know how these original witnesses wouldn't know this information back then. And if it's from new witnesses and they, have, they had all these details, why wouldn't they have come forward initially? But either way, when you think about the detail of the vehicle description coupled with the detail of the suspect description, you, you start to narrow down that pool. And this could be extremely beneficial, extremely advantageous when you're originally working this case. So I'm really asking myself now, where did this information come from? How credible is it? And if they had it originally, why wasn't that information disseminated to the public? Because they could have put out a bolo and maybe identified this vehicle and or these individuals. Now, if this information did just come forward, I really hope that law enforcement is vetting it thoroughly and ensuring that as they're putting this out to the public, they feel confident in, in saying these descriptions and knowing that more than likely these were the descriptions for the people inside that vehicle. Because if not, it could completely derail the case. We may be looking for unicorns. So I really hope that as they put these descriptions out, they, they were really confident in doing so because there's things that they know that we don't. Now, speaking of feeling comfortable, police said, quote, 
We feel comfortable that the three occupants of that vehicle are involved in one way or another in Julie's murder. We don't know what happened at the shopping center. We don't know if she was snatched there or if she was confronted with a weapon and ordered into the car. We don't know the motive, but somebody out there knows who did this. Someone out there knows what happened to Julie Ferguson. Now, real quickly, I will say this. I agree with everything said in that quote, but what's interesting to me, based on what I just said prior to this, they didn't double down on the descriptions, more so the car and the fact that there were three people. I don't know if that was just an oversight or if that was intentional, but what you can take away from this is that, unfortunately, police have never identified the red car or the three people inside of it. Now, for years, there were no major updates in the case, and in the mid-2010s, Julie's friends created a Facebook page called Justice for Julie Ferguson, which they used to share articles, provide updates, and ask for tips. In March of 2015, Julie's friends held a vigil to mark the 20th year without answers. One detective told the Washington Post, quote, Everyone hoped that we could bring this case to a close quick, but it's been 20 years, and we're still in the same predicament we were in from day one. Julie's mother, Pat, also spoke to the Post about how she never thought it would take this long to solve her daughter's murder. She said, quote, It's very frightening to think that I could die and not know who did it. That is what frightens me the most. Tragically, Pat did pass away a few years later, not knowing what happened to her only child. In 2017, True Crime Daily shared that the police were still considering Doug Da Silva as a possible person of interest. A detective mentioned, quote, he didn't have a solid alibi of where he was at the time. He provided some statements that would indicate that he could possibly be involved, but nothing that could actually push it over the edge where we can charge him. Now, I will say that some sources, including True Crime Daily, actually, they've reported that Doug was cleared in Julie's case through DNA. However, according to her advocates, that is not true. So take that however you will. True Crime Daily did try to contact Doug for a comment, but couldn't find him. So they talked to his daughter, April, instead. She had also been looking for her father, who vanished years after Julie's death. April said that she had a hard time believing Doug was part of Julie's murder and wanted him to come forward, prove he was innocent, and clear his name. And as far as I can tell, that has never happened. Now, in October of 2021, On the Case with Paula Zahn aired their episodes about Julie's murder. Now, the police did mention Doug De Silva's possible involvement, but they really focused on Noel Smith. They said he remains, quote, a key person of interest and mentioned that he's currently in prison for a completely unrelated murder. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Some places take you away. Some bring you together. Marathon does both. Marathon is Florida's family key with something for everyone. You'll find museums and wildlife refuges, wide-open beaches, miles of warm, clear water, and the historic Seven Mile Bridge. For more about Marathon and the latest safety protocols, visit flakeys.com marathon. Now, after Noel was convicted for that murder, the police went back to visit him and see if he'd admit to killing Julie. They said he didn't confess, and they don't think he ever will. 
And because of that, police were focusing testing DNA evidence in the case in hopes of either matching his DNA or ruling him out. The police also said they were conducting old-fashioned police work by getting out there and talking to people, and they had hoped that with the time passing, some people who were scared before would come forward now, and they said they were doing this because they believe there's more than one person who knows something in the Greenbelt area. Now, unfortunately, this is the last major update we have in Julie's case, which is still open and active. Detectives and Julie's friends are still pushing for answers, and they won't give up until they find them. All right, so now for my perspective, and this is going to be a quick one tonight because I'm not going to sit here and just speculate when I don't know all the facts and the police department does. But I do think there's a couple things we can address. First off, the big takeaway for me, DNA evidence. It sounds like they have it. They haven't said how much they have or where they got it from, but it sounds like they're pretty convinced that this DNA belongs to the potential killer. It clearly doesn't belong to Julie. They would have already ruled that out. And the fact that they keep talking about it uh, leads me to believe that they have something that they can compare to another person if they identify them, which is great. That's amazing. That, that will, as long as you have that, you always have hope. Now, as far as all the individuals that were mentioned tonight, I'm going to fire them off quick. You had Victor initially. You had this unknown man with the reflective sunglasses. You had Noel, who appears to be on the radar. And you had Doug De Silva. Okay, sure. One or two of them may have a little bit stronger of a case, especially when you think about the fact that Doug was saying he was in the area when Julie disappeared. That could have been a lie. I don't know if anything he said was particularly guilt knowledge. It might have already been public information. But sure, on the surface, it it looks really bad for him and, and good for the investigation. But it appears that there there might be more to the story and there may be exculpatory evidence that rules him out because... If that information that I relayed to you tonight was exactly the way it was conveyed, I think he would be a stronger person on the radar and and police would be actively focusing on him as much as they are on Noel. But they're not. So there's, there's a reason why they're doing that. And the reason why I'm kind of blowing through all these guys is because, honestly, for me, I think that everyone's still on the table. There's nothing I heard here tonight that would narrow it down to these four individuals and uh, that that's concerning. We have some descriptions about these suspects and when you take these descriptions about the sus- suspects and you couple it with the make and model of the vehicle, it's a, it's a smaller pool like I said and I'm surprised that it hasn't led to the owner of this vehicle cuz obviously they were probably from that community based on where Julie's body was was dumped. And they'd also had, would have been somewhat familiar with the area to know the liquor store and to know, you know, how to get around, how to navigate that area. So the fact that no one's come forward and said, hey, have you looked into so-and-so? They kind of matched the description and they had a vehicle like that. The only thing I could think of is, and I've, I've shown the vehicle a couple times tonight, the potential vehicle, not the actual vehicle, is maybe the witnesses are wrong. I've said that before as well, where unless you have multiple witnesses, they could have misidentified this vehicle and we may be looking for the wrong car. So where do we go from here? You got to keep looking for that car. You got to keep looking for those, those potential suspects that were identified. I feel like detectives have something that would suggest they are on the right path as far as that's concerned. But ultimately, you got to do what we're doing here tonight. You got to keep the case alive and hope that something resonates with someone out there who knows something, who knows what that's going to be. 
And if that person comes forward and gives a name and law enforcement does have DNA, it wouldn't take long to connect them to this crime. So that's really what we got to hope for. We have to hope this episode and all of the people that are covering it, it gets around to the right people in that community and someone finally comes forward, even if they're not completely sure, but they have an idea just by giving that name to law enforcement. It may be someone who's already, already on the radar by providing that information, you could crack this case. So don't be afraid to call. And I'm going to give you some information, but before I do, I want to give a quick recap. Just before 10 p.m. on March 20th, 1995, 17-year-old Julie Ferguson was abducted outside of the Greenway Shopping Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. At around 12.30 a.m., her body was left in the 12100 block of Daisy Lane, where it was later found at around 5.30 a.m. Police believe a 1988 or 1989 maroon or burgundy Volkswagen Jetta was involved in Julie's abduction and murder. So if you or anyone you know has information about this case, you're asked to call Prince George County Crime Solvers at 1-866-411-8477. So my final word on this case, I know that Julie's parents are no longer with us, and, and depending on what you believe, they've already been reunited with Julie, which, I, which is obviously a good thing. But there are still people on this earth, her friends, uh, the community, the detectives who have been working this case for years, they still deserve answers. And the person or people responsible for this crime need to be held accountable. So as long as we're still here, as long as we're still breathing, we're going to continue fighting. And, and that's my takeaway from tonight is to never give up hope and to keep pushing forward to get those answers. Be curious, be inquisitive, and good things will happen. And just to you guys, again, positive note, uh, I know these cases are tough, especially the way I, the ones we're covering, they're unsolved. So you're left with that, that lack of resolution, which is always difficult for the human mind to, to cope with. I understand that. That's why a lot of people don't like unsolved cases and true crime, but we're not covering be- them because you like them or they're going to get a lot of clicks. We're covering them because they deserve to be covered. And I think, like I said at the top of the show, the one positive thing that can be taken from this is that after hearing this case, you can look at your own life, your own situation, and realize how precious life really is and and to understand how important the friends and family around you are to your life and to make sure that you cherish those moments with, with Thanksgiving coming right around the corner is a great time to do that. So invite everybody over. Have a good time. Cherish those memories. I'll be doing the same. I want everyone to stay safe out there, and I'll see you soon. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. 
And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.